Warning, this episode contains terms and references. Well, to my mind, he was guilty. And not just to my mind, but also to my heart. And I go so far as to say the mind and heart of every goddamn person who ever heard the story. And I don't give a rat's butthole whether you lived in our little town or not lived in our little town. He did it. That boy's not right. From our studios in Lollapalooza Studios, New York City, I'm Mason Lane. This is Cold Case Crime Cuts. Stories unsolved, stories solved, stories dissolved. Stories brought into the light, stories locked in the dark. No stories left behind. Stories that sing, or have been sung, in song. Listen out for them, maybe before you listen to this. Stories. Cold Case Crime Cuts is a production of NAR, National American Radio in collaboration with the Surface to Air Sound Collective and our friends over at Soluble Radio in the UK. Find them on Twitter at solubleradio.com. Episode 2. Hazard. The only person that knows the truth of the story of the crime that happened on that unsolved night is perhaps the only person who did or didn't do it. What's the it? Put simply, the it is a murder. Or rather, the suspicion of a murder given that according to the story, there is no body. But just because there's no body doesn't mean that nobody did it. Somebody, not nobody, must be guilty of the suspicion of a murder, because that suspicion still hangs in the air like also the dust does over this old Nebraska town. Welcome to Hazard. Please walk carefully. Especially down by the river. I'm guilty. This is Harper Lee Lee, resident of Hazard in Sherman County, Nebraska. You might think it sounds like she's named after the author of the classic American novel, To Kill a Mockingbird, but I asked her, and she says she isn't. And anyway, it's not the killing of a mockingbird I've come all the way here to talk about, but the killing of a person. Harper Lee isn't guilty of any crime. She neither killed a person nor, for clarity, a mockingbird. No, she's guilty of something else. I was one of the finger pointers, one of the thousand finger pointers pointing right at him. Here's the story. When he was just seven, a boy, the one at the center of the story question, moved right here to Hazard, Nebraska. The town was established in 1886, when the Grand Island and Wyoming Central Railroad was extended via a series of rails to this point, and today it boasts a church, a post office, Jim's Motor Company, KKK Fertilizer, and a couple of bar and grills, all of which show up when you zoom in on Google Maps. In truth, it could be any town, anywhere, but it isn't. It's here, because Google Maps is quite precise and its exact location shows up quite clearly. But what doesn't show up on Google Maps is what's hiding underneath. Because both beneath and hanging over this town is a mystery. Remember the boy from a moment ago before the music came in? The one who came to Hazard when he was just seven? Well, he wasn't alone because he arrived here with his mother. We don't know his mother's age. There's no mention of either it or a father either. But at some point, likely when he was a bit older, He came to know a girl called Mary, a local girl, whose age we don't know either. But what we do know is that at some point, Mary went missing. What we also do know is that before, or as the folks around here would have it, during when she went missing, they used to walk down by the river, and according to reports, what they did when they were there is dream away out of this town. The question is, what was Mary's way out of this town? Was it the railroad from before? The one from 1886, when the Grand Island and Wyoming Central Railroad was extended via a series of rails to this point? Or was it the river itself on a boat or a raft of some kind? Or was it death? We'll be right back. 
Hi, I'm Mason Lane from the Cold Case Crime Cuts podcast. Do you want a website? If you've got a space on the internet, but there's nothing in it, then you probably do. Well, the good news is that it's incredibly easy because the great team over at websites.com will give you everything you need, including the tools to fix one up. Just head over to websites.com now to fill in the form on their website using the discount code COLDCASE, and they'll send you your very own box of website in the post. All you need to do is unpack it, build it with the tools provided, and upload it to the internet. It really couldn't be simpler, and you'll have a website in no time. I know it sounds like I don't, but honestly, I use websites.com all the time for all my website needs, and truthfully, they're great. Just head to websites.com and put in the discount code COLDCASE for 20% off your first website. Welcome back. There were a thousand people all pointing their fingers, and I was one of them. This is Harper Lee again. When Mary went missing, one of her fingers was one of the thousand fingers pointed right at Richard. That's the name of the seven-year-old boy, although his age when the thousand fingers pointed right at him has never been disclosed. Yet, since he came to the town with his mother at just seven, the folks had all said that Richard, that boy they called him, it's not right. First off, I was intrigued by the numbers. Harper Lee was clear, almost emphatic, that there had been a thousand fingers involved in pointing at him. But something about those numbers didn't add up, as numbers often don't. After all, numbers are never an exact science. Did you count them at the time? I was asking Harper Lee if she actually counted the fingers at the time. No, but it just seemed like a lot of folks all pointing their fingers. And it seemed to me, all of those fingers were saying, that boy's not right. There's that phrase again. It crops up a lot during my time in Hazard. You'll hear it a lot in this episode, too, from all kinds of people. But the thing is, like the apparent boy, those numbers aren't right. In Sherman County, you'll find the Sherman County Library, and on one of their one microfiche machine, I'm looking through back copies of the local paper, the Sherman Cornet. There's the usual kind of headlines you'd expect to find. Local man dies with turnip. Horse rescued from tree. Labor Day weekend cookout ends in bad pie. But what I'm after to find is or are hazard census records. I've only been here a day, but I can already tell that Hazard is a small town. Tiny. Barely a town at all, in fact. So maybe the population figures can shed a torch onto these finger numbers. This could be it. Cherry DeBurler is the town librarian. She works here in the library, and every day to do so, she passes below a door, above which is a sign that says, Knowledge has a beginning, but no end. I assume it's a quote, and it is. Cherry tells me she got it off an inspirational meme she saw on Facebook. She has others, too. A sign on her desk reads, Nothing is impossible. The very word itself says I'm possible. And it's written across a picture of a dolphin. As we walk to the microfiche machine, she tells me, Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom means not putting it in a fruit salad. She's right, of course. Although the impossible one is clearly nonsense. For instance, you can't strike a match on a bar of soap. That said, I make the decision not to argue with the motivational dolphin because I want Cherry on side. I ask her about the census. She tells me the last one was taken in 2010, and it doesn't take us long to find the figures in the newspaper. So, it says here that the population of Hazard is around 70 people. Sure it is. I've been here all my life and everybody knows everybody. For clarity, 70 is right. You can check yourself on Wikipedia. I quickly do the math. Harper Lee told me that a thousand fingers were pointing at the boy. Yet, even if each resident of Hazard is pointing all ten of their fingers at him, that's still only a maximum of 700 fingers. Something wasn't adding up. And now I knew it was definitely the numbers. Old Jim from Jim's Motor Company done but got only eight fingers himself on account of losing two of them. I automatically presume Jim lost them in an automotive accident at work, but Cherry says different. Different. 
different. How so? He laughed him in the club game. Okay, so help me out here. It weren't no bet or nothing. It were a fight. It might have been three fingers. She's reluctant to say more, but I resolve to talk to old Jim later. If fingers and the number of fingers are important to this story, then Joe and his missing two fingers could be two. Or three. Old Jim died a few years back. Car accident. I unresolved to speak to him. Instead, I ask, Cherry, do you remember the boy? And Mary, the girl who went missing? Everybody don't remember that. Kid moved here with his mom, aged just seven, and even the folks in town said the boy's not right. When Mary went missing, it was in the paper. Cherry pulls up another microfiche. This is because no one has digitized the hazard cornet, because there's literally no call for that and no point. The headline is stark. Garage owner loses fingers in card game fight. And I reckon if that had happened on a different day, then the missing girl story might have been front page. We eventually find the story about Mary on page two. It's near the bottom, buried under an advert for KKK fertilizer. It seems to me that a story like this should have been more prominent. Is this significant? I resolved to talk to the newspaper's editor. Paper editor has gone dead a few years back. I unresolved that idea too. But now that's possibly three lives lost and two, if not three, lost fingers. I'm starting to think there's more to the town of Hazard than meets the prejudiced eye. Jan's accident were one waiting to happen, to be honest. A whale came off his truck. After he lost his fingers, he couldn't really hold any tools. So if one factors in Jim's missing two fingers, even if everyone else was pointing 10 fingers at this boy, then I still make that only 698 fingers, or 697 if Jim lost three in the card game. It's still way off a thousand. Have you ever pointed at someone with more than one finger? I know I haven't, because like the digitizing of the hazard cornet, there's literally no call for that and no point. Hazard, population 70. That's 70 fingers, not a thousand, not even close. Plus, one of those population was presumably the boy, and another was Mary. So unless the boy pointed at himself, which seems unlikely, and Mary somehow joined in the pointing despite being missing, which seems even more unlikely. We are talking a maximum of 68 fingers that would have been pointing at anyone at any given time, assuming Jim was using one of his remaining ones. Yet, what is undeniable is that when a girl went missing, certainly some of the town's fingers were quick to round on the boy and point the blame squarely at him. It was time to square the circle of that potentially unfounded rounding and find out what really happened. In truth, Hazard River is not much more than a creek winding its way through on the edge of town, out past Jim's motor company and KKK fertilizer. The reason I'm walking down by it is to try and get a sense of the river itself, because it flows through the story like a metaphorical river, as well as a real one. Someone once said rivers babble, but they don't talk. I don't recall who, because I wasn't recording at the time and I can't find it in my notes. Maybe it was another of Cherry's feel-good memes, what I can find are witness statements from around the time that Mary disappeared, and this loner kid became the chief suspect, placing him often walking down by the river with Mary, where, according to those who knew her, she loved to watch the sun go down. That's what folks said at the time. This is Sheriff John B. Sloop of Hazard Law Enforcement. He's a big guy, maybe 200 pounds, with a girth and a uniform to match. He's been the law around here for 30 years or more. When Mary went missing... It was John who took the call. Truth of the matter is that everybody in Hazard knows everybody else. Remember the census? There's only 70 people, so this is entirely possible. It's a close-knit community, and so uh, if strangers come to town, naturally we meet them with suspicion and hostility. Suspicion and hostility are the sheriff's two dogs, 
They're bull mastiffs and are watching me now from under his desk as I speak to him. Their eyes are as narrow as perhaps some of the mines around here. Are their eyes prejudiced too? Is there such a thing? Can eyes be prejudiced? No, they can't. Gail Sandsbold is an optometrist I found online, and I call her up to ask if eyes can be prejudiced. No, eyes can't be prejudiced on their own. I think maybe it's the person behind the eyes. I thank her and hang up. So it's clear that I need to look into the people behind their eyes, not their eyes. That, if it was there, was where I would find prejudice. The people I'm looking into at the moment is the sheriff. And when I first arrived in Hazard, he swung by my car with the two growling animals to ask my business. I told him I was a podcast reporter from New York, and I'd come to investigate a possible murder. He asked what a podcast was, and I said everybody had one these days, and he should too. And we headed off from there. I like Sheriff John. Underneath the hat and behind the sunglasses and next to his dogs, he's a decent guy, trying to do a decent job of just dealing with indecent acts. I ask him, Can you talk me through what happened? Nope. At first he's reluctant, but I offer to help him out with his own podcast when this is all done. And microphones like this one are relatively inexpensive these days. Okay, let me see it. You can even get them to record straight onto your phone. Hostility, quit it! It's just a goddamn microphone! I said quit! What's this on the end? It's called a pop shield. It uh-huh. stops like the P or B sounds in speech from sort of making popping sounds. Uh-huh. I can get you one. I've got some spares back in my motel. Suspicion! Get the hell off that thing! Get a drop! Bad dog! Bad dog! Make me put it in the crate! Ah, oh, shit. I'm sorry about your popsicle thing there. Pop shield. It's fine. Don't uh, he won't give it up now. I can tell you that. It's, it's fine, really. We can do without it. You were about to tell me what happened? Um, well, people were pointing their pinkies at this boy who was potentially the perpetrator. Okay. Uh, but a boy behaving peculiarly bothers people because perhaps, potentially, possibly even that, that boy has been bad. Yep. Primary position of police is to bring the bandit in and probe the prisoner back in place. Penetrate the pattern behind the body. Who? Sure. Yes. To be honest, we might have to leave this for now while I go get a new pop shield. Oh, excuse me. Lucy, this is Sheriff. What's the problem? Over. I got a horse stuck in a tree and thought you ought to know. Over. Seventh goddamn time. Can you handle it, Lucy? I'm doing a podcast. Over. What's a podcast? Over. Um, it's a uh, medium to long form. While Sheriff John explained to Deputy Lucy what a podcast was, I looked out of the window. The sun was going down, turning the sky over hazard purple. The same color my pop shield had been before suspicion or hostility. I still wasn't sure which was which tore it up. It was beautiful. The sunset, not the pop shield. That was a mess. And I can totally see why Mary used to walk down by the river to watch it. I also realized that this interview would be sonically unusable if I didn't act fast. So I took one of my socks off and I put it over the microphone. It wasn't going to be perfect, but it was better than nothing. Finally, Sheriff John got off his radio call. The horse was being coaxed down with an apple. And we carried on with the interview. Sweet baby Jesus, what's that smell? Uh, I, I took off my shoe because, uh... No, so anyways, Carl comes in and says Mary never came home from walking down by the river. She loved to watch the sun go down, see? I knew this already, but it was good to have corroboration. And this kid was the main suspect straight away because people had seen him walking down by the river to watch the sun go down hundreds of times, so it's just the reason that he was involved. Now, I went round to him and his mom's place the next morning and asked him all kinds of questions. He denied it, of course, that no one understood why he fell for Mary. No one cared until she went out walking alone and never came home, yada, yada, yada. You didn't believe him. I said, how did he know she went walking alone if he wasn't there to see it? He just gets all confused and just keeps talking about what he felt for Mary, but 
a lot of folks say, he, he wasn't all there in the head. So it may have been that he was all there by the river, but because he wasn't all there in the head, so he was confused about whether he was there by the river or not in the head. Did you arrest him? I certainly brought him in for more questioning because everybody said he'd done it, and that's pretty much good enough for me. Plus, my dogs didn't like him much. Sheriff John told me that when word had got around town that he was bringing the kid in, it was hard to even get him in the jailhouse because he was suddenly surrounded by, and here's that number again, a thousand fingers. A thousand fingers all pointing right at the boy. A thousand fingers? Uh, are you sure? Uh-huh. Okay, so earlier in the library I got the census results for Hazard, and there's only like 70 people who live here. And I did some calculations, and I think a thousand fingers is unrealistic. Most folks used all ten. That doesn't sound plausible. Now you listen to me. At this point, the sheriff got quite defensive. He told me that, and this is a direct quote, folks in Hazard like to point with ten fingers, and that's an end to it. When I pressed him on the population numbers, he conceded that it may have been 700 fingers, as he, quote, didn't have time to stop and count them individually. You asshole. I still find it unlikely. Ten fingers, I'm telling you. Except Jim from Jim's Motors. He lost two of his in a court game. At this stage, the lack of a pop shield, the resultant plosives, and the muffled noise of a sock were becoming a little annoying, so I leave the sheriff alone with his suspicion and hostility, and I promise to speak with him again later, when I'd correctly replace the foam baffle. I swear, I left her by the river. This is the police tape interview. When Sheriff John got the kid back to the station, he was hoping for answers, and I'm hoping to find some too. Perhaps there's something that was missed first time round. I swear I left her safe and sound. Son, we got witnesses to put you walking down by the river to watch the sun go down. Yes, sir, we did most nights, and no one cared until the night she went out walking alone and never came home. This is what the sheriff told me earlier. Did you kill her, son? No one understood what I felt for Mary. Boy, did you brutally murder that girl? It's a difficult listen. Any recording without adequate shielding against vocal plosives often is. What happens is that when you speak, some sounds, for example a B or a P, you tend to expel a blast of air. This is what causes the popping sound in a microphone. A cover or barrier made from foam or other material will break up that air and solve the problem. Hence the name Pop Shield. If you can bear it, the interview continues. You told my deputy that three years ago you came to know Mary. That right? It was the first time someone looked beyond the rumors and lies. Like the ones you're telling me? We know you did no, it. Sir. Tell us where she is. I swear, I left her by the river. So you admit you were there? I swear, I left her safe and sound. It's here on the tape that Sheriff John finds an inconsistency in the story. Son, a minute ago you said she went out walking alone. Now it can't be both, son. So which is it? At this point, his mother, who you'll recall the kid moved to Hazard with when he was just seven, asks for a lawyer. And Sheriff John moves to stop the interview. I'm stopping the interview while we wait for your legal representative. Any questions? Yes. Why do people around here point using all ten fingers? The fingers thing again. So many things about this case remain unanswered and don't quite ring right. Not least the lack of evidence. Mary is missing. Most folks agree on that. But there's no body. No body has been found. And no body has been convicted. If Mary is dead, then it stands to reason that there must be a body and that somebody knows where it is. And even if Mary is alive but missing, she still has a body, but no body and no body has been found in either case. The truth is that somebody must know something about where her body, alive or dead, has gone or is. And not only does nobody know where Mary or her body is, nobody knows where the kid, 
Remember him? The one they said that wasn't right? The one from the police tape? The one the townspeople all pointed at in a seemingly odd way? Well, nobody knows where he is either. Because when his lawyer showed up, he was released due to all this lack of evidence while the sheriff continued the investigation. And then, well, the kid went missing too. And nobody has seen him since. Until now. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Gavis Scott Harris here from the Comedians Just Hanging Out and Chewing the Fat podcast. You know, it seemed to me that every other take on Comedians Just Hanging Out and Chewing the Fat on a podcast had been done. So I thought, hey, let's do exactly that. Let's chew fat. So every week, me and two other comedians sit around and chew on life's crystal while eating the real life crystal I've cut off last night's pork chops or whatever as we hang out and talk about movies or how comedy works or something. Sure, it's all been done before, but here's the thing. Not while chewing on actual fat. The thing about Groundhog Day is it's just a really funny movie. That's how comedy works, am I right? <laughs> you got funny films, you got TV shows, even books, am I right? And because they're funny, it's how comedy <laughs> works. <laughs> wow. This is really great fat. So join me, Gavis Scott Harris, as we chew the fat about movies and comedy and stuff while literally chewing fat. Available wherever. Welcome back to Cold Case Crime Cuts. I'm Mason Lane. To recap, a girl went missing in the small town of Hazard, Nebraska. A boy was suspected, pointed at even by a number of townsfolk who seemed to signpost with their digits in an unorthodox fashion. But with no body and no evidence apart from, quote, rumors and lies, the chief suspect couldn't be held by police and is also now missing. I told him not to leave town. This is Sheriff John B. Sloop, who was in charge of the investigation. Technically, I guess he still is. Truth is, I couldn't hold him. People said that boy weren't right, but hell, if not being quite right was any kind of criteria, I'd be holding most of the town in the cells on account of that weird pointing thing they do. Anyways, I told the kid to stick around while we continued the investigation, but he was long gone. Even his mom didn't know where. She reckoned he made it to the river and left this old Nebraska town. Sort of points to guilt, though, doesn't it? Richard's mom died two years ago. That made it difficult to talk to her for this podcast, so the trail there goes cold. But the bodies in this case keep piling up. Or they would if any of the ones that are missing are ever found and then somebody took the time to stack them vertically. Although, I don't know why anyone would. Again, as with the digitizing of the local newspaper, the Hazard Cornet, or pointing with ten fingers, there's literally no call for that and no point. Instead, that police interview, 30 years ago, was the last anyone saw of Richard. It seemed the kid had indeed left that old Nebraska town. Forever. But then... A few weeks later, I'm hot-desking at a workstation in our studios in Lollapalooza Studios, New York, when I get this email. It's addressed to me. That's how emails work. And at first, I'm intrigued by the subject header because it reads, A Thousand Fingers. I open it. It's from Richard. The kid. The suspect kid. At the center of the story. I sit up in my chair. I don't know Richard. I've never spoken to Richard. And all I know of Richard is what happened to him in Hazard back then. I have so many questions. What happened to Mary? Does he know what happened to Mary? Why did he say no one understood what he felt for Mary? Did he leave Mary by the river like he sweared? Did he leave her safe and sound like he also sweared? Did he kill Mary? And more importantly, 
is he ready to speak to a podcast? We email back and forth. I'm hot desking. We all do it at NAR, National American Radio. So I move around various ergonomic chairs as we do. Richard tells me he got in touch because he'd heard about my investigation. I ask him what he's heard and he says, not much. But he knows the case was never solved. He said he wants to put the record straight and I don't know if that's likely to be a confession or a continued denial or both or neither. There was only one way to find out. Actually, there were two ways to find out, but one of them was to continue emailing, and that would just result in more narration rather than a recorded interview. And as crime podcasts already rely way too heavily on the former, I asked him if we could meet, and if he mind me recording it in order to facilitate the latter. Understandably, he was reluctant to say where he was, but we agreed on a date and a location not far from Hazard itself. I told him I'd take the next flight. He said he'd be right there waiting. Can I get a coffee, please? I'm waiting for someone. Turned out it was me doing the waiting. I'm in a roadside diner somewhere in Nebraska. It's actually on the border of Nebraska and Iowa, outside a place called Walt Hill, if you know it. And it's also there, even if you don't. As I wait, unsure whether this guy, and he would be a guy now, not a boy, will even turn up. A man, a guy, comes in and glances around nervously. He's wearing clothes, jeans, t-shirt, and a hat pulled down over his hand. This strikes me as odd, but as he gets closer, it's no big deal. For the record, his other hand is in his pocket. I catch his eye. I can see he's thinking, is it him? Is that the podcast guy? The guy sitting there with a ton of recording equipment and wearing headphones. I nod to indicate that it is. He walks over. Hey. I reply, hey. So. He sits, orders a coffee. I look at him, and I remember what the townsfolk said about him. They said he wasn't right. And that seemed to be the general consensus. Am I sitting opposite a murderer, drinking coffee with a killer? Or am I now explaining what a podcast is to a wrongly accused man with a hat over his hand? For the record, his other hand is still in his pocket, under the table. It was time to let him tell me the full story in his own words, interrupted by some of my words. My mother came to Hazard when I was just seven. I'd heard this before, but it's good to hear him backing it up. Even then, the folks in town said, that boy's not right. Do you think their eyes were prejudiced? No, eyes can't be prejudiced on their own. I, I think maybe it's the person behind the eyes. I begin to wonder if he's ever trained as an optometrist. But first I want to know about his childhood before Hazard. Where did you live before you moved to Hazard? Before I was seven? Sure. My mom moved around a lot. I could sit for hours as he tells me his life story. But in truth, I've already got enough material for a podcast from all the other interviews I've done. So I decide to go straight for the big question. Did you kill Mary? He sighs. He looks down at his hand, the one under the hat. It's a trucker hat, and I'm starting to wonder why he hasn't taken it off his hand. What's under there? A knife? A gun? The fingers he used to strangle the life out of some poor girl before throwing her body in the very river they used to like to walk down by? He looks up. Three years before she disappeared, I came to know Mary. I can tell he wants to talk. He wants to get this off his chest. I want him to get the hat off his hand. First time that someone looked beyond the rumors and lies, saw the man inside. Is it true you used to walk down by the river? Yeah. She loved to watch the sun go down. We used to walk along the river and dream away out of that town. I'd heard that. So far, his story checked out. It was the same version of events I'd got from Sheriff John B. Sloop and Harper Lee and Cherry, the town librarian. Next, I asked him if he thought anyone understood what he felt for Mary. No one understood what I felt for Mary. No one cared until the night she went out walking all alone and never came home. I want to ask him why he thinks the townsfolk thought he was odd. But he's now well into his stride and I don't want to interrupt. Except with narration and post-production. 
Man with a badge came knocking next morning. That's the sheriff, Sheriff John B. Sloop, the sheriff from earlier in the podcast. I know what's coming next. Here was I, surrounded by a thousand fingers suddenly pointed right at me. A thousand? I had interrupted him, but this was important. Uh Uh-huh. A thousand fingers. Are you sure? Because I have to be honest, that is a lot of fingers. He shifts in his chair. What I want him to do is corroborate the weird hazard townsfolk ten-finger thing. So I wait. He changes the subject, which is curious. I swear I left her by the river. I don't want to push him on the fingers, but I also do, because it feels important. Can we go back to the finger thing? Because I checked the census, and there's only like 70 people living in Hazard, and unless they pointed with all 10 fingers each, and also there's this mechanic who lost two or three. I'm talking about Jim from Jim's Motor Company from earlier. The guy who lost two or three fingers in a card game and is now dead. So I'm kind of finding it difficult to see how it was a thousand fingers. Uh He glances down at his hand hat. I swear I left her safe and sound. He's being evasive, so I try another tack. Why did you leave town? I needed to make it to the river and leave that old Nebraska town. I know, sure, but why? What did you do, Richard? I didn't do nothing. So why did they point the fingers? Because of me. At this point, the waitress arrives with our coffee. When she leaves, the kid reaches for his to take a sip. What happens next will shock you. It shocked me, and it blew this cold case wide open. More after this. It's Erin from Erin's Place Podcast. I love the holidays, don't you? And this year, no matter what the holidays bring, I know that I can be sure of a great gift idea. My boyfriend of 18 years, that's his age, by the way, not how long we've been together, loves listening to podcasts. So I'm getting him a National American Radio Podcast voucher subscription. He can listen to all his favorite National American radio shows all day long, including Woke Folk, Amish Terries, where they talk about mysteries in Amish communities, and of course, Aaron's Place, where women in their 30s chat about dating inappropriately younger men. Get a National America radio podcast voucher and get 20% off with a code today. Richard has 10 fingers on each hand. It's an affliction he was born with, and that's why the townsfolk were mocking him. That's why he's been mocked his entire life. That's why he's wearing a hat on one hand, and the other has been hidden in his pocket the whole time or under the table. Why not gloves, I ask him. I look at his hands and the number of fingers on each one. The answer to the gloves question is obvious, and I don't know why I asked it. Perhaps for something to say. I think of something else to say instead. Something like, they wiggled ten fingers at you to tease you? To taunt you? Yes, he says. Yes. I'm so sorry, Richard. That seems incredibly cruel. He tells me he's used to it. He says it was always the same when he was a kid. It's why his mother moved to Hazard when he was just seven, over from his previous town in Peril, Wisconsin. The folks there called him Edward Fingerhands. He says after Mary disappeared, the people of Hazard called him Edward Stranglehands, too. I'm surprised no one in Hazard mentioned this, and I say so. Maybe they're embarrassed? No one's going to admit to a stranger that they've been cruel to a boy with 20 fingers. This rings true. I guess if I had waggled my ten fingers at a man with double that number just to mock him and also accuse him of murdering someone with them, then I wouldn't necessarily want to say so to a reporter from New York who's in town making a podcast. So, what have we got now? I guess the story of Hazard is really the story of prejudice. Not just prejudiced people, behind prejudiced eyes, but also prejudiced fingers, too. Fingers that pointedly pointed at an outsider with a disability. An outsider shunned by people in a town, scared of anyone who is a little bit different. 
They said, that boy's not right, but I assumed, wrongly as it turns out, that they meant in the head, whereas they meant in the fingers. Although it is all right, of course. Disability is this ability, as an inspirational meme in a photo frame on Cherry the Librarian's desk might say. Although it didn't. She thought he was weird, too. As Richard takes one ten-fingered hand from under the table and lifts the hat off his other ten-fingered hand with it to drink his coffee, clasping the cup tightly like a kraken might grip a ship, I feel sorry for him. To me, it's not even a disability at all. How can it be? If anything, it's more ability. Like if you were a runner and you had five legs. It's more, not dis. Advantages include jar opening and shadow puppetry. Although, I guess disadvantages, as I've learned to my cost, include a lack of off-the-shelf gloves. Yet, while one mystery has been laid to rest, there's still a pretty big one surrounding the girl whose body hasn't. The question remains, what happened to Mary? Oh, I'm absolutely fine. Mary is fine. During the end of our meeting in the diner from just now in the podcast, Richard told me the whole story. How he'd moved to Hazard with his mom and his perfectly abnormal number of fingers, and there he'd met Mary, and how it was the first time someone looked beyond the rumors and lies and fingers, and they became friends. And the reason that they became friends was that they had a special bond. Mary, it turns out, was born with webbed feet. Tiny pieces of skin joining her toes that gave them a duck-like appearance. She used to walk down by the river because it was away from the town, and she wouldn't get mocked for her slight waddle. And just like Richard, she'd been taunted her whole life. The townsfolk, she tells me, used to call her Duckberry after the singer Chuck Berry, and demand that she demonstrate her duck walk, also like the singer Chuck Berry. They likewise called her Duck Norris, Jemima Mary Duck, Moby Duck, Mary the Duck, Shit Toes Alabama, and Count Quackula. So, like her big toe and its immediate neighbor, she and Richard formed an unbreakable bond, and together they hatched a plan to leave that old Nebraska town. So I left first, and then Richard was going to come meet me. We were just two kids, making our dream of a way out of that town come true. A week after I met Richard in the diner, Mary agrees to talk to me on the phone and tell me her side. She tells me how they met up as planned on the other side of the river, where she'd been right there waiting the whole time. She says the people searching didn't find her because she hid in some ducks. There's an irony there, she says. She also says that Richard getting arrested wasn't part of the plan. But the moment they let him go, due to the lack of evidence, he joined her, and they left. We've been married for 27 years. Two kids. There's now another question left hanging. Five on each hand. Toes are normal. Thank God, I think. They deserve a future where they won't be driven out of a town that thrives on distal limb intolerance. I think about my life gone by and how it's done me wrong. Richard comes on the line. I can picture him now, holding the phone more easily than most. I ask him how it felt at the time, back in Hazard, Nebraska, with, if not a thousand, then around 700 fingers pointing at him. He says he thought there was no escape for him that time, and, as he puts it, that all his rescues were gone. Long gone. Unsurprisingly, Richard and Mary don't want Hazard to know where they are. They don't think the town deserves the truth. Cruelty flowed through Hazard like the river they used to walk down by to watch the sunset, and because of that cruelty, two kids made it to that river, and they left that old Nebraska town. For once, this is a cold case crime cut with a happy ending. A happier ending than even Richard could give someone if he was that way inclined. It's time to close the book on Hazard and let the river carry its secrets away. Cold Case Crime Cuts is presented by me, Mason Lane. Our program associates are Lance Fuller, Alexander Metaxa, Jake Yap, Alex Sivright, 
and Naomi Denny. Our writers are John Holmes and Gareth Saradig. Building handlers are Harley Gennaro and Nakatomi Tower. Nethergong Penn paints Japanese watercolors of each episode. Find out more, including why, at Cold Case Crime Cuts with one T and two S's. Original music was used. It was by Jake Yap. Album artwork by Simon Fowler. Associate Associate, Cliff Pathmanathan. Our engineers are Tony Chernside and Louis Blatherwick. Executive Movements by Jeff Posner and David Tyler. Cold Case Crime Cuts is produced and directed by John Holmes. Thanks to Unusual Productions and Audi. The welfare of the horse in this episode was monitored throughout by the American Horse Association. Damage to the tree was unavoidable. Cold Case Crime Cuts is defiantly put together at the studios of National American Radio at 10 Lala Plaza, New York City, and it is a very proud member of the Surface to Air Sound Collective and Soluble Radio.